Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you. Uh, it's certainly good to be together on Christmas morning, and it is exciting to preach on Christmas for a few reasons. Um, but one of them is that uh, you're kind of spoiled for options on how to go about it. I mean, there are so many things you can do. Here we are, Christmas sermon. Uh, went through so many iterations of, oh, no, I'll do it like this. No, I'll do it like this. And uh, as I considered the, the birth of Christ this year and tried to do what oftentimes I'm so bad at doing, which is cultivating that sense of longing in Advent, I'm, I have to confess, so many years of just Christmas sneaks up on me. I'm just doing so many things, and I went, oh, it's, it's Christmas Eve. I, I, can't, I, can, I can't believe it. But as I've tried to s- sit in that sense of longing this Advent season, something is crystallized for me. Uh, something that is really, I think, fairly obvious, but it's one of those things that you know it, and then it kind of hits you in a fresh way. And that is that Christmas morning, Christmas day, the, the Christmas event really only makes sense um, as something to celebrate within a two-act narrative. Um, imagine uh, you came into a performance that had two acts with an intermission, and you were running late, so you missed the whole first half. You, you came into the theater, second half of the play started, you saw a baby born, but then you got an emergency phone call and you had to run out. And, you, and that, that's it, that's all you got. And imagine how much sense it would make to tell people how awesome it was. I, got, I saw a baby get born, and then I left. Anything before that? No, I was late. Anything after that? No, I had to, had to go. Well, it doesn't make a lot of sense because without the two halves, what happens in the middle just becomes at best a cultural icon, at least in America, that can fit in your attic after the Christmas season's over, but doesn't have any command on your life, on, on my life. It's a hinge with, with nothing on either side. And so what I want to do this morning is to tell the old story. And I want to take the advice of one of my favorite pastors and just to not get cute on Christmas. Just tell the, the same story that grounds our hope, that grounds our faith. And, and I want to do that through a couple of portraits of Christ together this morning. And the first is the hope of Christ. I want to give three portraits of the hope of Christ. You'll recall that Israel is a nation called out of Egypt, given a law, taken into the promised land of Canaan. It was told to them, if you will abide by these laws, you will live by them. You will thrive in this land of milk and honey. Unfortunately, People of Israel were not altogether faithful. They broke the commands of the law in a variety of different ways that resulted in their oppression by the nations, and occasionally a judge would deliver them. Eventually we get a king, and eventually the kingdom splits into two halves, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And it's during this time where in the prophets, not not for the first time, we have Genesis 3.15, the promise of a seed, but In the context of the prophets, there's a particularly prominent emphasis on the idea that someone is coming to fix this mess that we've made. Someone's coming for us. And so 
I want to look at the first portrait from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Very well-known words. In the context of the oncoming Assyrian invasion, this is a message of hope. This is a message of hope. Listen to what Isaiah says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Instruments of war will be turned into instruments of peace. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. This part of the hope. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a couple things to point out. It's an amazing passage. Number one, as a word of hope for a people broken and in need of redemption, revelation is coming. Revelation is coming. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. There is light coming. There's something God is going to reveal that is coming. In verse 6, we get a peek at what it is, and it it truly is, is remarkable. If you put yourself in the context of a Jewish listener, For to us a child is born. Okay, I accept that. There are a lot of children born. All right, I'm good so far. And the government, to us a son is given. Okay, we've had sons, we have children. Good to go so far. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay, he's a pretty serious guy. He's going to be at least an influencer or somebody. Um, But his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Hold on, wait, time out, says the Jew. You're telling me God is going to be born? God is going to go down a birth canal and be born? No way. It would have been astonishing. It is astonishing. You'd be very reasonable to think, especially in the context of the prophets, that God would just thunder down from heaven and accomplish all of these great things. It's not what it says there. Apparently, part of the promise in light of the impending Assyrian invasion is, for unto us there's a child who's going to be born. And he will be mighty God. He will be descended from David, we learn as well. Verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom um, will this child sit, and justice and righteousness is how he will uphold it. To establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore, justice and righteousness is coming because of this child. First portrait. First portrait, a mighty God. Second portrait, a humble king. 
I don't know. Be there. A humble king from Zechariah 9. Here we have a picture of the enemies of God, and God is bringing judgment on those who afflict his people. And it seems that part of how he is going to exercise judgment is through a coming king. That's part of the plan. That's how he's going to judge those who afflict his people. And listen to part of that here. Verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So we're supposed to be getting excited. Something exciting is coming here. Behold, your king is coming to you. There's a king coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. How does the king come on a war horse, on a chariot? Yes, no, 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 on a donkey. One commentator talks about how jarring this would have been. He said, although it is certain that the ancient Jews understood this prophecy of the Messiah, Yet that this divine person, the king of Israel, should come unto them riding upon a donkey was by that time, unlike in earlier times, looked upon as below the dignity of any person of eminence and must at the uttering of this prophecy have appeared a very mysterious and improbable circumstance. Yes, because there is a king coming, but is not just about righteousness and justice. It is that, but he is humble and he comes to speak peace to the nations. So listen, there's something about this king that is going to bring peace on earth because of his mild character, something over which joyfully the nations will rise. That's what's coming. That's who's coming. A humble king who brings peace on earth as he rules from sea to sea and speaks peace to the nations. Second portrait, a humble king. Third, the branch of David. Branch of David from Jeremiah Chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. God, of course, makes his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. David, a man after his own, a God's own heart, even though he does some horrible things, uh, God's uh, faithfulness is what really matters in the situation. And he says, I will never forsake you, and there will never not be someone to sit on your throne. Jeremiah recalls covenant with David. And he uses the same language in chapter 33. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The promises were made. They're going to be fulfilled. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There is a descendant from David that is going to bring justice and righteousness who is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. This is language reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 11. Another, there, again, you're, there's an embarrassment of riches here. We didn't read this one, but remember in Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. A Davidic descendant to sit 
on the throne of his father David. So here's the picture that emerges just from the text that we've looked at, because there's other ones we could have. There's someone who is going to be born in the line of David who was a humble king, but at the same time, a person who could rightly be called God, have the government on his shoulders, speak peace to the nations while he rules, and execute justice and righteousness all at the same time. That is the hope of a Christ to come. That's who's coming. That's what O come, O come, Emmanuel means. That. That's what people are, that's what people were waiting for. That's the hope of Advent proclaimed by the prophets. And then you get to Malachi, the end of Malachi, and then what happens? Silence. Radio silence for hundreds of years. 450 years or so, perhaps. Where we live in between promises made and promises kept. The longing during Advent where the people are going, here are these promises made. Is, is this king coming? Is this king coming? But eventually, this very strange thing happened. Let me tell you about this strange thing. There was a man who emerged, a compelling figure that emerged in Israel. This guy was named Jesus, and he actually claimed to be the one that the prophets had been talking about. After hundreds and hundreds of years, this guy shows up from a backwater town claiming to be the fulfillment of these things. And in fact, he said that he was ushering in the very kingdom of God. He performed a ministry of miracles, exorcisms. He called people to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. So now let's zoom in on this. We looked at the hope of Christ. But what about the Christ of hope? Who is this Christ Who is this Christ in the second half of things? First, from Matthew chapter 11, a wellspring of rest. A wellspring of rest, excuse me. After talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation, Jesus says in verses 28 and 30 of Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Especially in, especially now, I mean, I guess you could always say this, but especially in the last couple of years, do you know anyone who says, no, I don't want rest for my soul. I got enough rest. I don't, know, I don't need any more rest. You don't hear that. As it turns out, the Christ of hope didn't stay a baby. He grew up and he said in his most tender autobiographical words recorded in the Gospels that he is gentle and lowly in heart, that he will give people rest, not just for their bodies, but for their very souls, that he would be able to do that. 
And so the Christ who's come is not merely a king, is not merely a deliverer. He's one that can offer something, therefore, that no king or no deliverer before him or after him could offer. A way for our souls to rest before God. A way for our souls to rest before God. Otherwise, they would be constantly fighting in futility and jockeying for position before him or wallowing in self-condemnation. But something about this Jesus, this Christ of hope, brings rest for our souls. And it is out of this incredible lowliness and humility that he suffered for sinners. Something we also would be expecting from the suffering servant passage, for example, Isaiah 52, 53. He became a man, condescended to become a man, and then he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was punished in our place so that we could have hope. He was obedient even to the point of death out of his humility, out of his lowliness. But, but where's the hope in that? Can you imagine how hopeless you would have been if you were one of the people who had kind of been with Jesus the whole way? You'd seen all his miracles, all his teaching. He's up there on the cross. You're thinking he's about to come down, show it, show out right here. And then he, and he dies. The hope of centuries just gone. And you say, well, back to waiting. Which is why... Easter Sunday cannot be separated from Christmas. Easter Sunday cannot be separated from Christmas because if Easter doesn't happen, Christmas doesn't matter. Matthew 28, 1 through 10, excuse me. After Jesus has been crucified and buried, the guard stationed there at the tomb. We read these words of the risen Savior. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Because Christ was, in the words of Paul, raised to life for our justification, mere atonement, mere atonement and death does not secure the Christian hope. It might have secured, might secure something better than hell, could have secured some kind of, some degree of mercy. But, but the, the resurrection provides us with a specific, concrete, glorious hope. As Christ was raised, so shall we all be raised. Because, remember, Romans 8, he was born to raise the sons of earth. 
He was born to give them second birth. As Christ was raised, so, so shall we who are in Christ. He was, Christ was born to raise the sons of earth. That is to say, you and I in resurrected glorious bodies. That is the hope present in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in this fifth portrait. But there is one more portrait. There's one more portrait because you and I are always on the vanguard. We are always on the cutting edge of the story that God is writing insofar as we inhabit the present and continue into the future. But we get tipped off about the ending. We get tipped off about the ending of the story in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, a chapter about the day of the Lord, a chapter about waiting and scoffers saying, hey, what about all these promises? What's going to happen? Where's the promise of His coming? In verse 8, Peter writes this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and with as a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We get the climactic presentation of this very truth by John in Revelation 21, don't we? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All things new and with Christ is where the story of Jesus ends. So, so let's zoom back out. We've seen the hope of Christ, the Messiah to come. We've seen the Christ of hope himself, his life, death, resurrection, promised return. Okay, so that's the context that we spend our time in. And then sandwiched right in between those things is two verses that we call Christmas. Luke 2, 6 and 7. This is Christmas right here. Two verses. Listen to how undignified this is just by itself. Now, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. That's it. Those two little verses right there. That's, that's Christmas. So what is then the hope of Christmas? The hope of Christ, the Christ of hope. What is the hope of Christmas? I want to suggest, I want to, I'm going to give you an illustration that I hope sticks with you to try to cement 
what has been crystallized for me over this Advent season. And I want to suggest that getting excited about Christmas, getting excited about these two verses with, with no context of what came before that or after that is like getting excited about finding a cocoon with no knowledge of caterpillars or butterflies. Here's what that looks like right there. So imagine you find this thing and look how awesome this is. And someone says, oh, yeah, tell me about what's awesome about it. And here's all you've got. Well, I mean, it's brown. It's, you know, it's ovular, roughly. It's uh, has a has an interesting texture to it. And hey, look at this thing. That's nothing to get excited about. It doesn't seem to have any significance even. If you don't know what comes before it and what comes after it. But I'm suggesting that in many cases, not all cultural Christmas is just a cocoon celebration. It is. Because it's celebrating these two verses without the first half, without the second half, and no story, no context. It's holding this up and saying, look, here is this baby born in squalor to a terrified teenage girl. Woohoo! When in reality, we have to have the larger story for Christmas to really have the significance it deserves. So what can we walk out of here reminded of in light of pushing us away from being a cocoon Christmas celebrator and celebrating Christmas in light of its story? Just three things, three very simple things. The first is that the Christ of the cradle is the Christ of the crown. We saw that in our portraits. The Christ of the cradle is the Christ of the crown. He can't be put away after Christmas as a cultural icon that has no demand on your life. So here's a question to ask yourself. Here's a provocative way to ask this question. What areas of your life are under the lordship of a little baby Jesus whose hand is very easy to push away versus the lordship of a sovereign king? Maybe you say in some places, oh, yeah, I'm all in. I'm all in for the lordship of Christ over my life in these couple areas. But this one is kind of like, this is like the baby Jesus section. He puts his, tries to put his hand on this and I go, ah, good suggestion, Jesus. No, stop touching this place. Where do I tend to have a Jesus in a certain pocket of my heart that I can control because he's relatively impotent in my thinking in a certain area? where I do what I want, where he doesn't have a demand on my life. I'm really sovereign over that part. Christ of the cradle is the Christ of the crown. The Christ who upheld the manger is the God who who created all things. He upheld the manger that held him. He's sovereign over every aspect of your life. He is Lord over every aspect of your heart. And so we can ask questions like this. Do we prefer an infant baby Jesus in certain cases as opposed to the sovereign king that he is? Second, I want to urge us to celebrate the gifts under the tree today as pointers to far greater gifts of the gospel itself. We receive good things on Christmas. Some of you have already maybe opened some presents. Uh, We have not. But but we open a lot of things that we get excited about. We say thank you for. We're we're grateful. 
It's a time of giving and receiving. We get excited about him. That's great. But remember that the Heavenly Father delights in giving good gifts. And he's done so. And so here's what I'm suggesting. I want everyone to adopt a typology. A typology of present opening. A typology of present opening. It's a theological term. We're generally speaking something in the Old Testament kind of points forward to or foreshadows something greater, but of the same kind of thing. Christ is a greater David, for example. Here's a typology of opening your presence. And that is to delight in and enjoy good gifts we receive as they point to and magnify the greater gifts of the gospel given to us by the Father in Christ, in whose presence we find our ultimate present and gift. But the, but the gifts that you open and enjoy, enjoy them, savor them, and then let them point you beyond them. To something greater. Don't let your enjoyment of your gifts stop with paper and plastic and Amazon boxes. Let them point you, enjoy them, and let them propel you forward to a greater thankfulness and a greater excitement and rekindle the wonder of what has happened here. Finally, remember that hope realized in the first coming points us to hope awaited in his second coming. The reality is this is a challenging day for a lot of people. It's a challenging day. We've got people who are going to celebrate their first Christmas uh, without a mom or a dad or a child. We've got people who are uh, working through physical problems. We've got parents with cancer. Uh, they're suffering. They're, 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 this is a tough day. This is a tough day. But it's important to remember that Christmas is a pointer to that final portrait. One of redemption and renewal where every tear will be wiped away. And so if you were here with us last week, I said grieve our losses because our losses are real, but the promises of God are true. Our losses are real, but the promises of God are true. And a baby born in Bethlehem a couple thousand years ago testifies to that truth. So pastorally, I would urge you to be sensitive and consider those who you'll be celebrating with between now and the new year as, they've, as they grieve loss for the first time or maybe for the tenth time as their grief takes a, just a different shape. But ultimately, to help them remember if it's appropriate, but certainly remember yourself that the first coming of Christ points to the second coming of Christ where there is reunion and there is restoration because that's where the story ends. And because of that, brothers and sisters, we have every reason to say peace be upon you. We, we have every reason to say keep the faith. We have every reason to say hope is coming because hope has in fact come. And therefore, on that basis, we have better reason than anyone to say Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to be able to worship on the day set aside to celebrate the birth of your Son. Lord, we pray we would not let um, this day pass 
in a manner that is overshadowed by ribbons and bows. But you would help us marinate in the promise of the hope of Christ who has come as the Christ of hope. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our minds and renew our hearts. That you would comfort us in our grief. That we can receive good gifts because you came to a dark world. Thank you for the hope. That one day you will raise the sons of earth. Thank you for new birth in Christ. Thank you for being raised to life for our justification. We pray that your spirit would be a balm on our hearts today as we rejoice. In Jesus' name.